like that. Good morning. Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Pittsburgh. We're thrilled to have everybody here on this beautiful sun, almost end of summer day. Uh, if you have time, please pick up the friendship pad at the end of the aisle and sign your name so that we can greet one another at the end of the service. If you wish to talk to a Stephen minister confidentially, the Stephen minister on duty today is, can I find that, is Alice O'Dwyer. Thank you. I do have an announcement from Joyce Drake. The Penny Pincher sign-up for workers begins today after service. I'm sure she would appreciate all you strong people helping out with that. Take a look at the bulletin for any other upcoming announcements or events. And please join us in the fellowship hall for tasty donuts after the worship service. And we will begin with our prelude, Bruce. Oh, with, that's right, I forgot that. In the summer, we have Bruce leaving us in hymns, and he's not right here yet. So I'm leading it. All right. Who's got a hymn that they want to sing? Shout out that number. Raise your hand. Anybody? Come on. We've got to have some takers here. All right, do I just pick a number at random? 729. Everyone turn to 729. Number eight. You got. Hey, do you have Joanna pumping up there? Oh, that's that's child labor. That's great, though. Number eight. First and last.
Please join me in our call to worship. God gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would become a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let us learn from God's word as with gentleness and humility we worship God today. Please pray with me, friends. Almighty God, you alone can order unruly wills and affections. Help us to love what you command and desire what you promise, that in the midst of this changing world, our hearts may be fixed where true joys are found. Gracious God, we have many things to enjoy, but we have neglected to see your hand in making provision for us. May this time of worship help us to become a wiser and more understanding people, eager to live as the body of Christ. Strengthened here with your word, please give us the courage to make a difference in the world, as Jesus did so long ago on the Galilean shore. Amen. How easily we notice the sins of others finding ways to criticize what they do or do not do. How much harder it is to believe that we are sinners ourselves, needing to repent of habits that separate us from God 
and set us against neighbors who are different from us. Let us seek God's forgiveness. O God, we admit that all is not well with us. We are easily angered and slow to forgive. We speak without listening and pretend to listen without really hearing. Our tongues become weapons rather than instruments of healing. We are more critical than helpful. Hidden in our hearts are the attitudes that produce avarice, deceit, and violation of our promises to you and to one another. Turn us around so that we can accept your forgiveness and learn to love as you want us to love. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And this promise of the New Testament is for you and for your children. Amen. Please be seated, friends. This morning's lectionary is particularly precious to Bill and to myself because 15 years ago we were married on this weekend, and so every three years in the lectionary cycle these scriptures come up. Our ceremony was on a Saturday. We surprised everybody that we had invited to the wedding by being there on Sunday morning, and Pastor Chris read from the pulpit these wonderful wonderful verses from the Song of Solomon, reminding us of a deep and passionate love that God has for God's people. And we just sat there and went, yes, we understand about deep and passionate love. So I invite you to hear this love letter that is written between God and God's people. The voice of my beloved. Look, he comes, leaping upon the mountains, bounding over the hills, My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind the wall, gazing in at the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. For now the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in the land. The fig tree puts forth its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And with that love letter, I invite representations of all of our love letters, that is, our young persons, to come forward to the chancel. We've got some fun to carry out. Come on, folks.
Have you studied chaos theory? If you look long enough, patterns begin to emerge. You just have to be patient, friends, right? And thank you for your patience and for helping them to praise God. We have this epistle lesson, which is appropriate because Martin Luther said about James that it was an epistle of straw. I think he was selling the the entire book of James short because there are some practical applications for how we can live our lives contained in the book of James. It gives us praxis 
not just orthodoxy that we have to say this is what we believe, but a practical way to live out the love that God has given to us. I invite you to hear God's word to you from the letter of James. Every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In fulfillment of his own purpose, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would become a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. You must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness, and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word, and not doers, like those who look at themselves in, in another way. For God looks upon that that is written in the heart, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And we have this response to the epistle reading, for which you can respond in bold. Be doers of the word of God, not simply those who hear. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger too.
We didn't know what to call ourselves. We thought about calling ourselves the Four Flats or the Murderers of Melody. We weren't quite sure. Mark chapter 7. Now when the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him, they noticed that some of his disciples were eating with defiled hands, that is, without washing them. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands. Thus observing the tradition of the elders, and they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it. And there are also many other traditions that they observe, the washing of cups and pots and browns, kettles. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? He said to them, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. You abandon the commandment of God and hold solely to human tradition. Then he called the crowd again and said to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. For it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come. Fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, Deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. All these evil things come from within, and they defile. The word of the Lord. Religion that is undefiled, religion that is pure will reach to help the orphan child and comfort spirits poor. If people come here with distress to judge them as a sin, be fast to offer love to bless. God bids them all come in.
And if you read at the bottom of that hymn, it was created in the language of Pashto in Afghanistan. Total depravity. Also referred to theologically as radical corruption is a theological doctrine derived from the Augustinian concept of original sin. It is a theological position that every person born into the world is enslaved to the service of sin. And apart from God's grace, is utterly unable to choose to follow God or refrain from evil or accept the gift of salvation. This theological approach to the Bible has included those whose thinking has been shaped by the writing of John Calvin, and so that includes Presbyterians. So this morning's message will sort of put us back into school with an analytical lecture of sorts that examines this marked passage by looking at the nature of depravity as it relates to intention. We will explore the charge of those who are complaining against Jesus and his teaching. And then we're going to say something positive about our intentions that seem to flow from what Jesus really has to say. Depravity. If you were to ask most people what the word depravity means, they would tell you that it refers to someone who is marked by corruption or evil. Some would point to Jim Jones who duped his followers into joining him in Jonestown as someone who was depraved. Some still would assume that it refers to someone who is just plain crazy. I rather like the use of the word depravia, which I heard for the first time when preparing to officiate at the funeral of Barbara Stewart here in this room. Now, Barbara was a bright woman with many interests, but was completely known around the world as the Kazoo Lady. She was the author of The Complete How to Kazoo and one of the wittiest members and founders of the orchestra Kazoophony. She became a professional kazooist after studying at the Eastman School of Music when her master flute teacher, Joseph Mariano, told her that everyone ought to be an expert at something, and so she decided, well, nobody has picked up the kazoo, so I'll do that. Barbara appeared at Lincoln Center and Carnegie Hall and made television appearances on The Tonight Show. She performed with Arthur Fiedler, P.D.Q. Bach, and Frank Zappa. She was a member of the Cornell Athletic Hall of Fame, and in Moscow in 1990, she set the Soviet women's pole vault record. And since the Soviet Union broke up, she still holds it. <laughs> After that record, members of Kazufity introduced their music and themselves 
with a heavy Eastern European or Russian accent. And when asked where they learned to kazoo, they mentioned their home country. They said that they all came from the country of Depravia. They leave you with the impression that people who think that box music sounds best when played by an orchestra of kazoos must be from the country of Depravia. But if I were to ask you about things that are really a sign of an activity that was depraved, you would tell me about things like a perpetrator who kills innocent people to spread terror to others. A person who painfully exploits the trust of another for their own pleasure. A person who commits a crime where the intent is to cause the physical disfigurement of the victim. Now this isn't an exhaustive list, just one to prompt us to consider what we might characterize as those things that are depraved. But if you're like most people of goodwill, these are the kinds of things that strike you as just plain awful. Trying to think about which crime shows more depravity than another gives us a taste of how prosecutors think when deciding what penalties to seek for the wrongdoers brought before them in especially heinous cases. Is one crime more atrocious, more cruel, depraved, or vile than another? And laws themselves do not necessarily include standards to determine this. Prosecutors may be left to make charges based on their own visceral responses or one driven by political considerations or bias or sensationalism. To help those who must make such judgments, forensic psychiatrist Dr. Michael Wellner and his team at the Forensic Panel in New York City are seeking to provide a system for our state seeking to quantify and codify wickedness for use by our judicial system. And to develop such a standard, the depravity standard, if you will, Wellner's team has issued a survey that asks a broad spectrum of adults to rate 25 violent criminal elements. The results will be to provide evidence-based guidelines to help reduce the degree of subjectivity throughout our judicial processes. As Wellner explains it, a depravity standard that is rooted in specific hallmarks of intent, actions, attitude, and victimology keeps prosecutors accountable to fully investigate a crime for these unique qualities so that evidence informs our decision-making. When ready, the depravity standard will not be based on what offenders actually did, but also insofar as possible to determine what was their intent on doing the crime. Intention can be defined as a mental state that includes a commitment to carrying out an action or actions in the future to a particular goal. Of course, judging a person's intent is a lot more difficult than judging that person's actions. 
because we can't really see very well into a person's mind. But that's where deeds, both good and evil, start. Jesus made this point when he said in the words of today's text, for it is from within the human heart that evil intentions come. Fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. All these things come from within and they defile. The depravity standard strikes us as a good idea. Indeed, anything that makes the justice system more equitable is worth while a, as an endeavor. But its focus is on how to charge a perpetrator after a terrible crime has been committed, not how to prevent him or her from committing the terrible crime to begin with. Jesus, however, points us to the within part of us because that is the place where change needs to begin. And thus, generations of preachers have rightly called us to get our hearts right with God. And by our hearts, they really mean the seat of our passion, so that our intentions are not evil. A number of years ago, I thumbed through notes on books that I inherited from my dad. In them, he mentioned a number of people whose writing had a profound impact on his thinking and his theological development. And so I found notes about Reinhold Niebuhr and Karl Barth and Dag Hammarskjöld and C.S. Lewis and Eric Hoffer. I didn't know much about Eric Hoffer. But in one note, he said, Eric Hoffer has made a bigger mark on my heart than any of these other writers. And he owned a number of Eric Hoffer's books. He owned uh, The Temper of Our Time, Working and Thinking on the Waterfront, First Things and Last Things, and he owned a book entitled Before the Sabbath. None of these, however, seem to make as much impact by this stevedore of a writer as this book entitled The True Believer. It was his first. Now, Hoffer was a longshoreman. He was a very rough worker who seemed to understand the challenges of hardworking people. In his book, The True Believer, Hoffer, his first book, points out the destructive legacy of those who hold positions with unbending tenacity particularly in mass movements. Hoffer says that the rigid believer becomes unattractive as a representative for their cause, alienating themselves from civil discourse with anyone who differs with them. And then he writes, their fanaticism becomes meaningful only to themselves, and they commonly create antipathy toward the causes they espouse because of their rigidity. And I thought, 
Something like this is going on in this passage from Mark. The true believers are pestering Jesus because he and his followers do not scrupulously follow one of the defining marks of true belief, the ceremonial washing of hands. And because of this, they have consigned Jesus and his mission to being a dangerous heresy. Now, years later, the Apostle Paul faced the same restructive fanaticism as he took the Jesus' faith out into the Gentile world. His true-believing opponents insisted the only way Gentiles could become Christians would mean affirming every little jot and tittle of the Torah. Many pastors know of people coming to them and inquiring about the beliefs and practices of their particular tradition. Pastor, I've been thinking about joining your church. First, I want to know what I must believe to do that. Now, the assumption behind this request is that religion centers on beliefs and practices distinguishing them from other traditions. So we pastors commonly invite people to learn a little about our church's approach to the sacraments in the Bible. And certainly, each tradition has its particular theological conviction at the heart of its life and its history. We humans are creatures of language and concept. Our ability to put ideals, beliefs, our hopes, our fears into language separates us from the rest of living creatures. Now, in the Hebrew tradition, there are several main attempts to join right language with right conviction. One is the law or the Torah combining doctrine and behavior. Some of the Torah was written down and embedded in our Jewish and Christian scriptures. Other traditions developed out of the law were passed down by memory. And the Torah is helpful. Then later Christians became concerned about theological doctrine and early Christians struggled to put language into the doctrines about creation and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and Trinity. And in the creeds, Christians borrow language and concepts from Greek philosophy and then blended that with the Torah. And in the Middle Ages, Christians made similar attempts to put faith into language. Thomas Aquinas merged Christian doctrine with the philosophy of Aristotle. And John Calvin offered a massive statement about the Christian faith inspiring theological thinking for many Reformation churches. John Wesley then modified a version of Calvin's theology and informed the entire Methodist tradition. And William Ellery Channing gave those unhappy with 19th century Calvinistic Puritanism a modern-day Unitarianism. Others have continued to give us rich, provocative versions of the Christian faith. One that I encountered more deeply when I moved here was that of Walter Rauschenbusch, who taught at Rochester Divinity School. And his work influenced many around the world. He was Baptist. But did you know that many Baptists wanted to have nothing to do with Walter Rauschenbusch? You see, Walter Rauschenbusch's view of Christianity was that the purpose of Christianity was to spread the kingdom of God, not through fire and brimstone style of preaching, but by leading a Christ-like life. 
Rauschenbusch did not view Jesus' death as an act of substitutionary atonement, but in his words, he died to substitute love for selfishness as the basis of human society. He wrote that Christianity is in its nature revolutionary, and he tried to remind us of this. He explained that the kingdom of God is not a matter of getting individuals to heaven, but of transforming life on earth so that it will be more harmonious like heaven. In Rauschenbusch's early childhood, many Protestant churches were allied with social political establishments. In effect, we supported the denomination along with some who had quite wealthy uses of child labor. I mean, they did not have children just pumping the organ. They worked, right? They didn't go to school. Many did not see a connection between an issue like this and ministry and did very little to ease human suffering. But Rauschenbusch saw it as his duty as a minister and as a student of Christ to act with love by trying to improve the social conditions of the city of Rochester, New York. And many were influenced by Rauschenbusch, and so has been your mission here. Rain gives evidence of that. We've got your backpack gives evidence of that. So do teams who go to New Orleans or Kenya. We've got lots of other influences. We've got sturdy European neo-orthodoxy. We've got all of these things influencing and challenging our faith. But if I want to find something to really challenge it, I open the Bible and read prophets like Isaiah. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. A classic case of true believers causing religious doubt is that of Abraham Lincoln. Now, Lincoln grew up on the impoverished Midwestern frontier. He, young Lincoln, witnessed true believer Christianity as mean-spirited denominations struggled with competition for each other to win converts to Jesus. Each claimed their own stake on Christian faith. One was the correct one. This became so distasteful to Lincoln, so that even in his adult years, he never joined a church. But he maintained a very deep respect for Christian faith and could normally be found in worship on Sunday, especially during his presidency. And during his presidency, he rented a pew annually at the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church. 
The pastor at the time was Reverend Gurley. He developed a relationship where the two of them frequently would meet privately to discuss theology. And then Reverend Gurley presided over the funeral of Lincoln's son, Willie. And not later, just a few years later, presided over the funeral of Lincoln himself. Lincoln's faith departed from the true believers of the Midwest as the Civil War dragged And Lincoln objected to all attempts by politicians and evangelical theologians to find the obvious hand of God in all the violence of that awful struggle. He was not certain America was a chosen nation, uniquely favored by God. He was uneasy about identifying the ways of God with battlefield slaughter. None of the confident theology served up by our nation's leading Christians was acceptable. Even though Lincoln held his own Christian convictions to the end of his life, he found that much of the talk was a temptation to unbelief. Today, some of us are true believer folks who are creating unbelief for our time. I mean, we sometimes drag out biblical passages to assault those who are different from us. And when this happens, the rigid belief of true believers creates unbelief among many who are different. Simultaneously, we struggle when our own faith and motives are assaulted by those with little religious conviction of any kind or compassion in an effort to assure themselves that sin really doesn't matter. And rigidities lead to standoffs. So what do we do? Do we opt for some kind of minimalist theology? If that's the road you want to go, I would suggest to you you start with Micah. He has a very minimalist statement. What does the Lord require of us but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God? You could spend the rest of your life discovering what that means Justice, kindness, humility. We can pray and study and think and ponder these things to our spiritual benefit, but we cannot mistake any of our ponderings for the absolute truth and will of God. Maybe this very minimalist statement by Jesus would help. It was the one favored by Lincoln. We are to love God and neighbor as ourselves. We'll never know the full meaning of this love commandment. It will always exceed any attempt to freeze it into our own limited belief statements, but we could start there. I mean, for all of his meticulous theology, the Apostle Paul tried to carry it a little further for us. Intentions. 
There are good reasons for the old saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. It can mean, for one thing, that our intentions were never connected to our action plan or that something distracted us from following through on what we really intended to do that was good. Or we could quote T.S. Eliot in Murder in the Cathedral, which says, the last temptation is the greatest treason to do the right deed for the wrong reason. I mean, does it mean that the Pharisees were right about pointing out that the disciples had not washed their hands or the cups before they ate? Dirty hands do not make a dirty heart. Right? It's greed, not grime. It's malice, not money. It's deceit, not dust. It's arrogance, not alcohol, that makes us unclean. Water will not wash away immorality. Religious rituals will not cleanse us from envy or slander or arrogance. All of these come from the inside, said Jesus. Jesus is warning us not to prefer creeds to deeds. I like the story about Queen Victoria, who was at a diplomatic reception in London. The guest of honor was an African chieftain. All went well during the meal until at the end they brought out finger bowls for people to wash their fingers. Now, the guest of honor, this African chieftain, had never seen a British silver finger bowl before, and no one had thought to brief him beforehand about its purpose. So he took the finger bowl in his two hands, he lifted it to his mouth, and he drank down its contents, every drop. There was breathless silence among the British upper crust. They began to whisper to each other. But all of that stopped when Queen Victoria took her finger bowl in her two hands and lifted it to her lips and drank its contents. And a moment later, 500 very surprised British ladies and gentlemen drank the contents of their finger bowl. It was against the rules to drink from the finger bowl. But on that particular evening, Victoria changed the rules because she was, after all, the queen. It is against the rules not to wash your hands before you eat. And on the Pharisees' traditional mark, they were right. But if you follow Jesus, he says... These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Our traditions should not kill our compassion. The Lever Soap Company came out years ago with an advertising catchphrase. It went like this. 
Lever 2000 cleans all your 2000 parts. Well, there is one place that even the best soap can't reach. It cannot clean your heart. And it seems to me that almost every generation draws its lines concerning who is clean and who is unclean. Years ago, following a regular Sunday worship service at a very small Presbyterian church, a woman lingered near the back of the building. She had an agenda. She confessed that her 18-year-old daughter had given birth to a child out of wedlock. And then, very reluctantly, she whispered to the pastor, Well, the baby should be baptized, shouldn't it? pastor said he would discuss the matter with the elders. They had a long debate. The board approved. The baptism was set to take place on the fourth Sunday in Advent. The church was full. And this congregation had a custom of asking this question as a part of the baptismal service. And who will stand with this child? Elder Jones read the statement and question. And at that point, normally friends and sponsors in the family would all stand up and they would remain standing for the remainder of the service. And the pastor and Elder Jones were quite worried that no one but this young woman's mother would stand with her. When the question was asked, it looked as if their worst fears would be realized. Then one man stood. It was an elder. He was not known for his compassion or sentimentality. He would have joined right in with all of the Pharisees about the washing of cups. Then a few other elders stood, followed by a young couple who had recently joined the church. And soon a number of people were standing with the young mother. And then they left their seats and gathered around her and put their arms on her and her baby. I don't know what caused them to do that. I don't know what makes hearts change. If I did, I would be the president. Maybe it was the text they read that day. I know what it was. It was from the gospel. It was from the letter of 1 John. See what love the Father has given to us that we should all be called children of God. 
If we love one another, God's love abides within us and becomes perfected through us. Thankful that God and Jesus Christ has shown us the importance of deeds, not creeds, and given us these many gifts so that we might say, see what love the Father has shown us. We in gratitude can dedicate these gifts that we offer with grace. Our hearts overflow with thanksgiving for the abundance you entrust to our stewardship, O God. You have reached into the shadows where we often flee to rescue us and give us your work to do. You seek to free us from the chains of sin and gratitude. We offer these gifts in our lives that together we might bring healing and hope to others. Please bless our offering this morning, O God, and help us to bless others in Jesus' name. Please be seated, friends. We have a number of prayer requests this morning. First, we want to give thanks and praise for the beauty that is shining God's love letters to all of us, both in the flowers and the chancel, 
from the music that was offered today, from that which is uh, present for you in the art show and the fellowship hall, and all of the ways that God shines and we can write God's love letters. We also give thanks and praise that Anna Mae Woodward, who often sits with our ARC residents, I know Anna Mae's not here, Kathy, and we miss her. She fell, so we're praying for Anna Mae. She's at Highland Hospital, but she is doing better, and we're hopeful that she'll be back to join us soon. We're also giving prayers for refugees and migrants without safety, security, food, and shelter, that we might be God's hands assisting them in that time. We're also in prayer for young Dylan Bachman, who successfully underwent oral surgery this week. Joe Fantuzo did the surgery, for which we give thanks and praise, and Dylan is home and recovering. And Matt, we're joining in prayer for you and Susie Wall, giving thanks for God also giving giving Susie a successful surgery and the recovery that she's enjoying right now. Thank you. And I think we should be in prayer for teachers. And for students, it's a big week. Let's pray together. Lord God, we bring to you today our recognition that as a community of your people, there are some of us with only a little faith and others of us with much Some of us do many things for you and get tired. And others of us do very little and are still tired. But together we are your church. And we pray for all of those special needs for healing and for hope. We pray for classrooms and their teachers school administrators, students, especially do we pray for parents who send their children off to school with such great trust and hope. Lord God, we thank you for the many varying skills of mind and heart and hand you've given to the human race. We thank you that You labor with us in our ministry and give us energy and direction for our work. We pray that we will not lose remembrance that you created us human beings, not human doings. We pray that we will keep the focus of our identity as people and as a community upon our relationship with you. And we pray that our good intentions will come out. We pray for those who have lost marriage and family, health and hope, by making an idol of their work. We pray for those teetering on the edge of breakdown because of overwork, that they will see the danger and make changes. And we pray for the encouragement of those who wish to live out what their heart tells them, to live in kindness and goodness and to walk humbly with you. So enable us to be your people, making a difference in the world, 
by living out the words we often pray so easily when we say what Jesus taught, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Amen. I thought for our charge today we would use our call to prayer. Let all who pray the prayer Christ taught first clear the cluttered heart, make room to breathe the living thought those well-worn words impart. May your grace-filled hearts Nourish an aching world today. Go in peace. May the love of God the Father, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
and the blessing of the Holy Spirit go with us and abide with us all today and in the life everlasting. Amen.